You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about disabilities in pediatrics. Joining me is Dr. Danielle Barber, who's an instructor of neurology in the Division of Child Neurology at CHOP. Welcome, Dr. Barber. Thank you. So we're going to talk about disabilities, and the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, defines a person with a disability as someone who, quote, has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. It should be noted, though, that this is a legal term and not a medical one. So, Dr. Barber, I'm wondering, how do we think about and define disability in medicine and specifically pediatrics? It is important to know that the ADA does provide legal protections, and that's why it's important to have that legal definition. From a medical perspective, we think a lot about the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health from the World Health Organization. The ICF was published by the WHO in 2001 at the same time as the ICD, which is the codes that we use all the time. But it seems to me in practice that many fewer people, physicians, know about the ICF as compared to the ICD codes. And the ICF provides us with a framework for conceptualizing conditions in relation to how it affects a person's anatomy and function, how it affects their activities and participation in life events, as well as personal and environmental factors that impact each of these things. So for example, what's the goal when we're caring for a child with epilepsy? We typically answer that we're, our goal is to get seizure freedom, to make the seizure count zero. But we can think about adverse effects of anti-seizure medications and think about quality of life. Whereas if we think about the ICF and think about the function, the goal of caring for the child with epilepsy might be to help the child go swimming because that's what they love to do. And so that includes the obvious problem of treating seizures and preventing seizures, but we also want to think about functional limitations and having the kids swim with their peers and what their access to a swimming pool may look like, how the parents may feel anxious about swimming and what barriers they may face in society about that. So it's not just about the medical condition. It's also about societal role and function all around. That's really interesting. And I honestly did not know about the ICF. And when you're talking about function here, you're also really making it personal because in your example about swimming, that might be very valuable to some families and not at all valuable to other families who don't swim. And so in our discussion of defining disability, we should think a lot about how our patients identify with this term as well. And thinking about the labels that we give groups of people. And there are many labels that we identify with, whether gender, race, ethnicity, or many others. But these identities coexist with disability. And also, disability can be fluid in that anyone can become disabled. So can you talk about disability and identity and how the dynamic nature of disability in that anyone can have a disability can challenge our identity? 
Yeah, this is so important. That intersectionality of identities is critical. A quarter of Americans have a disability. And as you said, it's important to note that disability is dynamic. So some folks have disability from birth and others may become temporarily or permanently disabled over the course of their lifetime. Either way, as a disabled person accepts their disability, they may seek connection with other disabled peers, develop community based on their shared experiences, and then feel included in community with other disabled people that may help recognize that they have or should have the same rights and should be treated the same way as folks who don't have disability and have the same worth as a non-disabled person. And that grows pride in themselves and empowers people to claim rather than mask or deny their disability. And this whole process has different stages to it. There's an academic literature around this of the process of forming a disability identity. We know that this is really important for health, that people with a strongly positive disability identity have improved quality of life, have decreased depression and anxiety. And these people with positive disability identities are often also better able to advocate for themselves in interactions with clinicians and in other ways as they try to access care. So I do think that we as physicians have a role in fostering the growth of this disability identity in our patients and families. And I think in doing that, this discussion of identity is really closely tied with the language that we use. Absolutely. And I've noticed a trend recently that people are moving away from saying things like wheelchair bound to wheelchair user. And this change has happened with many other diagnoses as well, such as a person with autism rather than an autistic person. And this language is really putting the person first. Is this the preferred approach in talking about disabilities? So there was a movement about a decade ago for person-first language, as you described, for example, a person with autism. But as folks have claimed their disability identity, many prefer identity-first language because they feel their disability is an integral part of themselves. Just as you could not separate your race or your gender from how you see yourself— In the autism community specifically, and also in the deaf community, some folks think that saying a person with autism makes it sound as if the autism is a package or a suitcase that they're carrying around and not an integral part of themselves. So the bottom line is that we should listen for what language people use about themselves. You can ask the individual or family if they prefer person-first or identity-first language. Neither one is wrong, but some people do feel strongly about their preferences. I'm also glad you brought up the term wheelchair-bound specifically because most people who use wheelchairs do not feel bound to them. They feel freed and enabled by them. So I agree that paying closer attention to our language choices is important, and we should use fact-based language instead of words that have value judgments associated with them. That's a great point. I've also noticed in the community of children with diagnoses like dyslexia, some people are calling things like that, learning disabilities, and some are calling it learning differences. And when we talk about rights, too, and the legal aspect of some disabilities, right, there's a tie there that we're not just talking about a spectrum of people who learn differently, but we're talking about people who have educational rights. And I think the same thing comes up with many other disabilities. And so I think that's really 
closely tied to identity as well and how people use language. So I love your approach of asking the patient and watching what language they use and mirroring that for them in our conversations. I think that's absolutely right. And I'll echo that exactly as you said. We as physicians should not be afraid to use the word disability. As we mentioned at the beginning, it has legal protections that are associated with it. And when we are comfortable using that language, then that helps foster the disability identity, positive, strong disability identity in our patients and their families. And they can find their community, gain support, and access their legal protections. So Mm -hmm. that language definitely ties into this. So let's shift a little bit into the clinical realm. So something for us to be mindful of in primary care is anchoring bias or diagnostic overshadowing. I've seen this when a patient presents with pain or irritability and a workup is pursued to determine if the discomfort is secondary to the patient's disability rather than some of the more common causes of pain in primary care, such as a sore throat or ear infection. So is this an issue that you see in neurology as well? Absolutely. This is pervasive in every field of medicine. One example I love was from the excellent movie Crip Camp, in which one of the women in the movie has cerebral palsy, and she was laughing as she was relating a story of coming to the emergency department with abdominal pain. And the surgeons thought it must be her appendix because they couldn't possibly imagine her true diagnosis, that she had a sexually transmitted infection. (laughs) Mm. So she was so proud of herself for getting that sexually transmitted infection. So we should be careful about what presumptions we make about people's abilities and activities. And unfortunately, this often does lead to delayed diagnoses for people with disabilities. Now, you just mentioned a film, and often disability is portrayed in the media as something to pity, someone who's suffering or being limited in their activities due to their disability, sometimes being left out, excluded, or bullied. It's therefore not surprising that when you ask people about the quality of life of patients with disability, they presume it to be poor. And as you mentioned, that plays into the biases that we may have in healthcare. But this doesn't match what patients themselves are saying. So can you enlighten us about the quality of life of people with disabilities? Yeah, this is called the disability paradox, and you can put it in PubMed and find a nice literature about it. Many people with significant disability equilibrate to living with functional limitations and enjoy a very good quality of life. Two quick papers that I love in this field. The first is called The Disability Paradox, and the first author is Gary Albrecht. They did semi-structured interviews with 153 people with disabilities, and 54% of people with moderate to serious disabilities reported having excellent or good quality of life. Another study was the Swiss Health Survey, and here they evaluated information on perceived health of 18,760 participants. This disability paradox seems to dissolve when contextual factors are put into consideration. So people only perceive they have bad health when they have impairments in activities and participation. And this circles back to what we talked about in the beginning, Mm -hmm. the social model of disability, the society and environment, the role of function. So what we talked about with the ICF, when people have high function and are integrated into their community and have a strong disability identity, they can have a very high quality of life and perceive good health. That's so fascinating. And I think when we are 
talking about disability is so important that we keep that function piece in mind. And I love that you're opening our eyes up to some of the biases that we may have and the ways that the literature can challenge some of those. So as healthcare professionals, I think that another bias we might have is that we eliminate barriers for our patients with disabilities. But People with disabilities may face challenges in navigating our healthcare system, just like many other people. And I would imagine that my office is very mindful in their design and friendly, but I think I might be surprised. So what are some of the things that we can all do in our primary care offices to make sure that the environment is welcoming to patients with disabilities? Absolutely. There's always room for improvement. And we should think about this from the perspective of our patients and their families, but also from the perspective of our clinicians and staff. So remember that disability is common and it impacts our colleagues too. Mm -hmm. I would challenge us all to think through the experience from start to finish, from the moment that a patient is calling to schedule an appointment. Who are they talking to? How do they navigate the campus of your clinical space, parking, entering the building, accessing forms or documents? Is it written? Is it online? Are there, what are the barriers there? The exam rooms, There are so many spaces that can be made more accessible, whether it's providing elevators and ramps, which are typically pretty standard, but interpreters for people who are hearing impaired, adjustable height exam tables and desks, doors, bathrooms. And if we're talking about staff, then also making closed captioning at meetings or dictation software can improve productivity for all of your employees, not just folks with disabilities. It's a great point to include staff. I remember an exercise in college that a professor made us do, which was walking from one side of campus to the other. And one group of individuals walked their normal way across the campus. And the other group had to only use wheelchair accessible ramps. And we found that even though they weren't in a wheelchair and they were walking these ramps, the time was so much longer because the ramps were so inconvenient and often took people into basements and back alleys and all kinds of places that you wouldn't recognize that even though the campus was deemed accessible for wheelchairs, it just wasn't convenient and we underestimated how long it would take. Yeah, so I think this is a great exercise. And, uh, you know, folks without thinking about it will sometimes temporarily put things on ramps because it's a convenient space to put Mm -hmm. things and they don't realize that they're impacting accessibility when they do that. And, you know, we do need to recognize that the ADA is wonderful and provides some legal protections, but it is a floor. It is the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. There is a lot more that we can do to really improve belonging and not just, you know, the bare minimum of the legal requirements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you've opened our eyes to many of the biases that we could potentially have. And I think we're just scratching the surface here. So what are some of the resources that providers can access to learn more about caring for patients with disabilities and continue to challenge some of their own implicit biases? Oh, there are so many. I'll just <laughs> give you a few of my favorites. I think many folks may be familiar with the implicit association test that comes from Harvard, and maybe you've done it before for race Mm -hmm. or other biases. There is one for disability, and that's excellent as well. I really love the Docs with Disabilities podcast, which is really wonderful and enlightens your perspective on physicians with disabilities. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful program called the Disability Visibility Project, which includes both several books as well as a blog and other pieces. 
And then I will also say we as physicians should be aware of our legal obligations when caring for patients with disabilities. And one of my favorite authors in this space is Lisa Iazzoni. She is an internal medicine physician, and she's written a lot about physicians' perceptions of people with disability and even knowledge of practicing physicians about their legal obligations. And look her up in PubMed. You'll be able to find her excellent work that has a lot of resources available through that. Great. Thank you for some of those resources. And we'll link to them on our website, too, so that people can find them easily there. You've given us a lot of great info to dig a little bit deeper into this topic. And we've covered a lot. So let's challenge listeners to pick one thing that we discussed today that they will incorporate into their daily practice. And while I think about what I'm going to start with, can you share with us what your first step was? (laughs) (laughs) So to be honest, my first step was actually through Twitter. And I went to a lecture at a big meeting and was frustrated with some of the language that I heard at that meeting Mm -hmm. and felt like I needed to learn more and started connecting with a disability community through Twitter. And I think connecting with people with lived experience, there is nothing better Mm -hmm. (laughs) and really opens your eyes. You get so many examples and see things in a different way. So that's how I started. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I don't think Twitter gets enough credit for Um, Being a professional resource, it can be really a great way to form connections. It's how we connected for this podcast. So yes, (laughs) I think that what I've learned from you today that I'm going to start with is really listening to the language that my patients with disabilities are using so that I can make sure that I mirror my language to the identity that they use. So I love that tip from you. And I hope that listeners really reflect on some of the other things you've offered today and pick something that they can incorporate. Thanks for joining us and for talking about disability, and we appreciate all that you do and the care that you provide our patients in neurology, so thank you. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 